Chapter Eleven of Tales of the Five Towns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Clifton. Tales of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Eleven. Nocturne at the Majestic. Part One. In the daily strenuous life of a great hotel, there are periods during which its bewildering activities slacken, and the vast organism seems to be under the influence of an opiate. Such period recurs after dinner when the guests are preoccupied by the mysterious process of digestion in the drawing rooms or smoking rooms or in the stalls of a theatre. On the evening of this nocturne, the well-known circular entrance hall of the Majestic, with its tessellated pavement, its malachite pillars, its Persian rugs, its lounges, and its renowned stuffed bears at the foot of the grand stairway, was for the moment deserted save by the head hall-porter and the head night-porter and the girl in the bureau. It was a quarter to nine, and the head hall-porter was abdicating his pagoda to the head night-porter and telling him the necessary secrets of the day. These two lords, before whom the motley panorama of human existence was continually being enrolled, held a portentous confabulation night and morning. They had no illusions. They knew life. Shakespeare himself might have listened to them with advantage. The girl in the bureau, like a beautiful and languishing animal in its cage, leaned against her window and looked between two pillars at the magnificent lords. She was too far off to catch their talk, and, indeed, she watched them absently in a reverie induced by the sweet melancholy of the summer twilight, by the torpidity of the hour, and by the prospect of the next day, which was her day off. The liveried functionaries ignored her, probably scorned her as a mere pretty little morsel. Nevertheless, she was the centre of energy, not they. If money were payable, she was the person to receive it. If a customer wanted a room, she would choose it. And the lords had to call her Miss. The immense and splendid hotel pulsed round this simple heart, hidden under a white blouse. Especially in summer, her presence and the presence of her companions in the bureau, but tonight she was alone, ministered to the satisfaction of male guests, whose cruel but profoundly human instincts found pleasure in the fact that, no matter when they came in from their wanderings, the pretty captives were always there in the bureau, smiling welcome, puzzling stupid little brains and puckering pale brows over enormous ledgers, twittering borrowed facetiousness from rosy mouths, and smoothing out seductive toilettes with long, thin hands that were made for ring and bracelet and rudder lines, and not a bit for the pen and the ruler. The pretty little thing despised of the functionaries corresponded almost exactly in appearance to the typical bureau girl. She was moderately tall, she had a good, slim figure, all pleasant curves, flaxen hair and plenty of it, and a dainty, rather expressionless face. The ears and mouth were very small, the eyes large and blue, the nose so-so, the cheeks and forehead of an equal ivory pallor, the chin trifling with a crease under the lower lip, and a rich convexity springing out from below the crease. The extremities of the full lips were nearly always drawn up in a smile, mechanical but infallibly attractive. The hair was of an orthodox frizziness. You would have said she was a nice, kind, good-natured girl, flirtatious but correct, 
well adapted to adorn a dog-cart on Sundays. This was Nina, foolish Nina, aged twenty-one. In her reverie the entire hotel majestic weighed on her. She had a more than adequate sense of her own solitary importance in the bureau, and stirring obscurely beneath that consciousness were the deep, ineradicable longings of a poor, pretty girl for heaps of money, endless luxury of finery and chocolates, and sentimental silken dalliance. Suddenly a stranger entered the hall. His advent seemed to wake the place out of the trance into which it had fallen. The nocturne had begun. Nina straightened herself and intensified her eternal smile. The two porters became military, and smiled with a special and peculiar urbanity. Several lesser but still lordly functionaries appeared among the pillars. A page-boy emerged by magic from the region of the chimney-piece, like Mephistopheles in Faust's study, and some guests of both sexes strolled chattering across the tessellated pavement as they passed from one wing of the hotel to the other. "'How do, Tom?' said the stranger, grasping the hand of the head-hall porter, and nodding to the head-night porter. His voice showed that he was an American, and his demeanour that he was one of those experienced, wealthy, and kindly travellers who know the Christian names of all the hall porters in the world, and have the trick of securing their intimacy and fealty. He wore a blue suit and a light grey wide-awake, and his fine moustache was grizzled. In his left hand he carried a brown bag. "'Nicely, thank you, sir,' Tom replied. "'How are you, sir?' "'Oh, about six and six. Whereupon both porters laughed heartily. Tom escorted him to the bureau, and tried to relieve him of his bag. Inferior lords escorted Tom. "'I guess I'll keep the grip,' said the stranger. "'Mr. Pank will be around with some more baggage pretty soon. "'We've expressed the rest on to the steamer.' "'Well, my dear,' he went on, turning to Nina, "'you're a fresh face here.' He looked her steadily in the eyes. "'Yes, I am,' she said, conquered instantly. Radiant and triumphant, the man brought good humour into every face, like some wonderful combination of the sun and the sea-breeze. "'Give me two bedrooms and a parlour, please,' he commanded. First floor?' asked Nina prettily. First floor? Well, I should say. And on the Strand, my dear.' She bent over her ledgers, blushing. "'Send someone to the phone, Tom, and let them put me on to the Regency, will you?' said the stranger. "'Yes, sir. Samuels, go and ring up the Regency Theatre. Quick!' Swift departure of a lord. "'And ask Alphonse to come up to my bedroom in ten minutes from now,' the stranger proceeded to Tom. "'I shall want a dandy supper for fourteen at a quarter after eleven. "'Yes, sir. No dinner, sir?' "'No. We dined on the Pullman.' "'Well, my dear, figured it out yet?' "'Numbers a hundred and two, a hundred and twenty, and a hundred and seven, said Nina. "'Keys one o two, one twenty, and one o seven, said Tom. "'Swift departure of another lord to the pagoda. "'How much?' demanded the stranger. "'The bedrooms are twenty-five shillings, and the sitting-room two guineas.' "'I guess Mr. Pank won't mind that. "'Hello, Pank, you're here. "'I'm through. Your number's one o two or one twenty, which you fancy?' Just going to the phone a minute, and then I'll join you upstairs. 
Mr. Pank was a younger man, possessing a thin, astute, intellectual face. He walked into the hall with noticeable deliberation. His travelling costume was faultless, but from beneath his straw hat his black hair sprouted in a somewhat peculiar fashion over his broad forehead. He smiled lazily and shrewdly, and without a word disappeared into a lift. Two large portmanteaus accompanied him. Presently the elder stranger could be heard battling with the obstinate idiosyncrasies of a London telephone. "'You haven't registered,' Nina called to him in her tremulous, delicate, captivating voice as he came out of the telephone box. He advanced to sign, and, taking a pen and leaning on the front of the bureau, wrote in the visitor's book in a careful, legible hand, Lionel Belmont, New York. Having thus written, and still resting on the right elbow, he raised his right hand a little, and waved the pen like a delicious menace at Nina. "'Mr. Pank hasn't registered either,' he said slowly, with a charming affectation of solemnity, as though accusing Mr. Pank of some appalling crime. Nina laughed timidly as she pushed his room ticket across the page of the big book. She thought that Mr. Lionel Belmont was perfectly delightful. "'No, he hasn't,' she said, trying also to be arch. "'But he must.' At that moment she happened to glance at the right hand of Mr. Belmont. In the brilliance of the electric light she could see the fair skin of the wrist and forearm within the whiteness of his shirt-sleeve. She stared at what she saw, every muscle tense. "'I guess you can round up Mr. Pank yourself, my dear, later on,' said Lionel Belmont, and turned quickly away, intent on the next thing. He did not notice that her large eyes had grown larger, and her pale face paler. In another moment the hall was deserted again. Mr. Belmont had ascended in the lift, Tom had gone to his rest, and the head night-porter was concealed in the pagoda. Nina sank down limply on her stool, her nostrils twitching. She feared she was about to faint, but this final calamity did not occur. She had, nevertheless, experienced the greatest shock of her brief life, and the way of it was thus. Part 2 Nina Malpas was born amid the embers of one of those fiery conjugal dramas which occur with romantic frequency in the provincial towns of the northern Midlands, where industrial conditions are such as to foster an independent spirit among women of the lower class generally, and where by long tradition character is allowed to exploit itself more freely than in the southern parts of our island. Lemuel Malpass was a dashing young commercial traveller with what is known as an agreeable address in Bursley, one of the five towns, Staffordshire. On the strength of his dash he wooed and married the daughter of an hotel-keeper in the neighbouring town of Hanbridge. Six months after the wedding, in other words, at the most dangerous period of the connubial career, Mrs. Malpass' father died and Mrs. Malpass became the absolute mistress of eight thousand pounds. Lemuel had carefully foreseen this windfall, and wished to use the money in enterprises of the earthenware trade. Mrs. Malpass, pretty and vivacious, with a self-conceit hardened by the adulation of saloon bars, very decidedly thought otherwise. Her motto was, What's yours is mine, but what's mine's my own. The difference was accentuated. 
Long mutual resistances were followed by reconciliations, which grew more and more transitory, and at length both recognised that the union, not founded on genuine affection, had been a mistake. "'Keep your damned brass,' Lemuel exclaimed one morning, and he went off on a journey and forgot to come back. A curious letter, dated from Liverpool, wished his wife happiness, and informed her that, since she was well provided for, he had no scruples about leaving her. Mrs. Malpas was startled at first, but she soon perceived that what Lemuel had done was exactly what the brilliant and enterprising Lemuel might have been expected to do. She jerked up her doll's head and ejaculated, So much the better. A few weeks later she sold the furniture and took rooms in Scarborough, where, amid pleasurable surroundings, she determined to lead the joyous life of a grass widow free of all cares. Then, to her astonishment and disgust, Nina was born. She had not bargained for Nina. She found herself in the tiresome position of a mother whose explanations of her child lacked plausibility. One lodging-housekeeper to whom she hazarded the statement that Lemuel was in Australia had saucily replied, I thought maybe it was the North Pole he was gone to. This decided Mrs. Malpass. She returned suddenly to the five towns, where at least her reputation was secure. Only a week previously Lemuel had learnt indirectly that she had left their native district. He determined thenceforward to forget her completely. Mrs. Malpass' prettiness was of the fleeting sort. After Nina's birth she began to get stout and coarse, and the nostalgia of the saloon bar, the coffee-room and the sanded portico overtook her. The Tiger at Bursley was for sale, a respectable commercial hotel, the best in town. She purchased it, wines, omnibus connection and all, and developed into the typical landlady in black silk and gold rings. In the Tiger Nina was brought up. She was a pretty child from her earliest years, and received the caresses of all as a matter of course. She went to a good school, studied the piano and learnt dancing, and at sixteen did her hair up. She did as she was told without fuss, being apparently of a lethargic temperament. She had all the money and all the clothes that her heart could desire. She was happy, and, in a quiet way, she deemed herself a rather considerable item in the world. When she was eighteen her mother died miserably of cancer, and it was discovered that the liabilities of Mrs. Malpass' estate exceeded its assets, and the tiger mortgaged up to its value. The creditors were not angry. They attributed the state of affairs to illness and the absence of male control, and good-humouredly accepted what they could get. Nonetheless, Nina, the child of luxury and sloth, had to start life with several hundreds of pounds less than nothing. Of her father all trace had been long since lost. A place was found for her, and for over two years she saw the world from the office of a famous hotel in Doncaster. Her lethargy, and an invaluable gift of adapting herself to circumstances, saved her from any acute unhappiness in the Yorkshire town. Instinctively she ceased to remember the tiger and past splendours. Equally, if she had married a duke instead of becoming a bookkeeper, she would have ceased to remember the tiger and past humility. 
Then, by good or ill fortune, she had the offer of a situation at the Hotel Majestic, Strand, London. The Majestic and the sights thereof woke up the sleeping soul. Before her death, Mrs. Malpass had told Nina many things about the vanished Lemuel. Among others, the curious detail that he had two small moles, one hairless, the other her suit, close together on the underside of his right wrist. Nina had seen precisely such marks of identification on the right wrist of Mr. Lionel Belmont. She was convinced that Lionel Belmont was her father. There could not be two men in the world so stamped by nature. She perceived that in changing his name he had chosen Lionel because of its similarity to Lemuel. She felt certain, too, that she had noticed vestiges of the Five Towns accent beneath his Americanisms. But apart from these reasons, she knew by a super-rational instinct that Lionel Belmont was her father. It was not the call of blood, but the positiveness of a woman asserting that a thing is so because she is sure it is so. Part 3 Nina was not of an imaginative disposition. The romance of this extraordinary encounter made no appeal to her. She was the sort of girl that constantly reads novelettes, and yet always, with fatigued scorn, refers to them as silly. Stupid little Nina was intensely practical at heart, and it was the practical side of her father's reappearance that engaged her bird-like mind. She did not stop to reflect that truth is stranger than fiction. Her tiny heart was not agitated by any ecstatic ponderings upon the wonder and mystery of fate, she did not feel strangely drawn towards Lionel Belmont, nor did she feel that he supplied her something which had always been wanting to her. On the other hand, her pride, and Nina was very proud, found much satisfaction in the fact that her father, having turned up, was so fine, handsome, dashing, good-humoured, and wealthy. It was well, and excellently well, and delicious to have a father like that. The possession of such a father opened up vistas of a future so enticing and glorious that her present career became instantly loathsome to her. It suddenly seemed impossible that she could have tolerated the existence of a hotel clerk for a single week. Her eyes were opened, and she saw, as many women have seen, that luxury was an absolute necessity to her. All her ideas soared with the magic swiftness of the beanstalk. And at the same time she was terribly afraid, unaccountably afraid, to confront Mr. Belmont and tell him that she was his Nina. He was entirely unaware that he had a Nina. "'I'm your daughter. I know by your moles.' She whispered the words in her tiny heart and felt sure that she could never find courage to say them aloud to that great and important man. The announcement would be too monstrous, incredible, and absurd. People would laugh, he would laugh, and Nina could stand anything better than being laughed at. Even supposing she proved to him his paternity, she thought of the horridness of going to lawyers' offices, he might decline to recognise her, or he might throw her fifty pounds a year as one throws sixpence to an importunate crossing-sweeper to be rid of her. The United States existed in her mind chiefly as a country of highly remarkable divorce laws, and she thought that Mr. Belmont might have married again, 
a fashionable and arrogant Mrs. Belmont and a dazzling Miss Belmont, aged possibly eighteen, might arrive, both of them steeped in all conceivable luxury, at any moment. Where would Nina be then with her two-and-elevenpence halfpenny blouse from Glaives? Mr. Belmont, accompanied by Alphonse, the head-waiter in the salle à manger, descended in the lift and crossed the hall to the portico, where he stood talking for a few seconds. Mr. Belmont turned and, as he conversed with Alphonse, gazed absently in the direction of the bureau. He looked straight through the pretty captive. After all, despite his superficial heartiness, she could be nothing to him, so rich, assertive and truly important. A hansom was called for him and he departed. She observed that he was in evening dress now. No, her cause was just, but it was too startling. That was what was the matter with it. Then she told herself she would write to Lionel Belmont. She would write a letter that night. At nine-thirty she was off duty. She went upstairs to her perch in the roof and sat on her bed for over two hours. Then she came down again to the bureau with some bluish notepaper and envelopes in her hand, and, in response to the surprised question of the pink-frocked colleague who had taken her place, she explained that she wanted to write a letter. "'You do look that bad, Miss Malpas,' said the other girl, who made a speciality of compassion. "'Do I?' said Nina. "'Yes, you do. What have you got on now, my poor dear?' "'What's that to you? I'll thank you to mind your own business, Miss Bella Perkins.' Usually Nina was not soon ruffled, but that night all her nerves were exasperated and exceedingly sensitive. "'Oh,' said the girl, "'what price the Duchess of Doncaster! And I was just going to wish you a nice day to-morrow for your holiday, too.' Nina seated herself at the table to write the letter. An electric light burned directly over her frizzy head. She wrote a weak but legible and regular backhand. She hated writing letters, partly because she was dubious about her spelling, and partly because of an obscure but irrepressible suspicion that her letters were of necessity silly. She pondered for a long time, and then wrote, Dear Mr. Belmont, I venture... She made a new start. Dear Sir, I hope you will not think me... And a third attempt, My dear father... No, it was preposterous. It could no more be written than it could be said. The situation was too much for simple Nina. Suddenly the grand circular hall of the Majestic was filled with a clamour at once charming and fantastic. There was chattering of musical gay American voices, pattering of elegant feet on the tessellated pavement, the unique, incomparable sound of the frou-frou of many frocks, and above all this the rich tones of Mr. Lionel Belmont. Nina looked up and saw her radiant father, the centre of a group of girls, all young, all beautiful, all stylish, all with picture hats, all self-possessed, all sparkling, doubtless the recipients of that dandy supper. Oh, how insignificant and homicidal Nina felt! Thirteen of you!' exclaimed Lionel Belmont, pulling his superb moustache. Two to a handsome? I guess I want six and a half handsomes, boy!' There was an explosion of delicious laughter, and the page-boy grinned, ran off, and began whistling in the portico like a vexed locomotive. The thirteen fair, shepherded by Lionel Belmont, passed out into the murmurous summer night of the Strand. Cab after cab drove up, 
and Nina saw that her father, after filling each cab, paid each cabman. In three minutes the dreamlike scene was over. Mr. Belmont re-entered the hotel, winked humorously at the occupant of the pagoda, ignored the bureau, and departed to his rooms. Nina ripped her inchoate letters into small pieces, and with a tart good-night to Miss Bella Perkins, who was closing her ledgers, the hour being close upon twelve-thirty, she passed sedately, stiffly, as though in performance of some vestal's ritual, up the grand staircase. Turning to the right at the first landing, she traversed a long corridor, which was no part of the route to her cubicle on the ninth floor. This corridor was lighted by glowing sparks which hung on yellow cords from the central line of the ceiling. Underfoot was a heavy but narrow crimson-patterned carpet, with a strip of polished oak parquet on either side of it. Exactly along the central line of the carpet Nina tripped, languorously like an automaton, and exactly over her head glittered the line of electric sparks. The corridor and the journey seemed to be interminable, and Nina on some inscrutable and mystic errand. At length she moved aside from the religious line, went into a service cabinet, and emerged with a small bunch of pass-keys. Number 107 was Lionel Belmont's sitting-room, number 102, his bedroom, was opposite to 107, number 108, another sitting-room, was, as Nina knew, unoccupied. She noiselessly let herself in to number 108, closed the door, and stood still. After a minute she switched on the light. These two rooms, numbers 108 and 107, had once communicated, but as space grew precious with the growing success of the Majestic, they had been finally separated, and the door between them locked and masked by furniture. By reason of the door, Nina could hear Lionel Belmont moving to and fro in number 107. She listened a long time. Then, involuntarily, she yawned with fatigue. How silly of me to be here, she thought. What good will this do me? She extinguished the light and opened the door to leave. At the same instant, the door of number 107, three feet off, opened. She drew back with a start of horror. Suppose she had collided with her father on the landing. Timorously she peeped out and saw Lionel Belmont, in his shirt-sleeves, disappear round the corner. He is going to talk with his friend Mr. Pank, Nina thought, knowing that number 120 lay at some little distance round the corner. Mr. Belmont had left the door of number 107 slightly ajar. An unseen and terrifying force compelled Nina to venture into the corridor, and then to push the door of number 107 wide open. The same force, not at all herself, quite beyond herself, seemed to impel her by the shoulders into the room. As she stood unmistakably within her father's private sitting-room, scared, breathing rapidly, inquisitive, she said to herself, I shall hear him coming back, and I can run out before he turns the corner of the corridor. And she kept her little pink ears alert. She looked about the softly brilliant room. Such an extravagant triumph of luxurious comfort as twenty years ago would have aroused comment even in Mayfair, but there were scores of similar rooms in the Majestic. No one thought twice of them. Her father's dress-coat was thrown arrogantly over a Louis XIV chair, 
and this careless flinging of the expensive shining coat across the gilded chair somehow gave Nina a more intimate appreciation of her father's grandeur and of the great and glorious life he led. She longed to recline indolently in a priceless tea-gown on the couch by the fireplace and issue orders. She approached the writing-table, littered with papers, documents in scores and hundreds. To the left was the brown bag. It was locked and very heavy, she thought. To the right was a pile of telegrams. She picked up one and read, Pank, Grand Hotel, Birmingham. Why not Burgle Hotel? Simplest, most effective plan, and solves all difficulties. Belmont. She read it twice, crunched it in her left hand, and picked up another one. Pank, Adelphi Hotel, Liverpool. Your objection absurd. See safe in Bureau at Majestic. Quite easy. Seen with girl, second evening. Belmont. The thing flashed blindingly upon her. Her father and Mr. Pank belonged to the swell mob of which she had heard and seen so much at Doncaster. She at once became the excessively knowing and suspicious hotel employee, to whom every stranger is a rogue until he has proved the contrary. Had she lived through three St. Ledger weeks for nothing? At the hotel at Doncaster, what they didn't know about thieves and sharpers was not knowledge. The landlord kept a loaded revolver in his desk there during the week, and she herself had been provided with a whistle, which she was to blow at the slightest sign of a row. She had blown it once, and seven policemen had appeared within thirty seconds. The landlord used to tell tales of masterly and huge scoundrelism that would make Charles Peace turn in his grave, and the landlord had ever insisted that no one, no one at all, could always distinguish with certainty between a real gent and a swell mobsman. So her father and Mr. Pank had deceived everyone in the hotel except herself, and they meant to rob the safe in the bureau tomorrow night. Of course Mr. Lionel Belmont was a villain, or he would not have deserted her poor dear mother. It was annoying, but indubitable. Even now he was maturing his plans round the corner with that Mr. Pank. Burglars always went about in shirt-sleeves. The brown bag contained the tools. The shock was frightful, disastrous, tragic, but it had solved the situation by destroying it. Practically Nina no longer had a father. He had existed for about four hours as a magnificent reality, full of possibilities. He now ceased to be recognisable. She was about to pick up a third telegram, when a slight noise caused her to turn swiftly. She had forgotten to keep her little pink ears alert. Her father stood in the doorway. He was certainly the victim of some extraordinary emotion. His face worked. He seemed at a loss what to do or say. He seemed pained, confused, even astounded. Simple, foolish Nina had upset the balance of his equations. Then he resumed his self-control and came forward into the room with a smile intended to be airy. Meanwhile Nina had not moved. One is inclined to pity the artless and defenceless girl in this midnight duel of wits with a shrewd, resourceful and unscrupulous man of the world but one's pity should not be lavished on an undeserving object. Though Nina trembled, she was mistress of herself. She knew just where she was and just how to behave. She was as impregnable as Gibraltar. Well, said Mr. Lionel Belmont, genially gazing at her pose, you do put a snap into it anyway. 
Into what, she was about to inquire, but prudently she held her tongue. Drawing herself up with the gesture of an offended and unapproachable queen, the little thing sailed past him, close past her own father, and so out of the room. "'Say,' she heard him remark, "'let's straighten this thing out, eh?' But she heroically ignored him, thinking the while that, with all his sins, he was attractive enough, she still held the first telegram in her long, thin fingers. So ended the nocturne. Part 4 At five o'clock the next morning, Nina's trifling nose was pressed against the window-pane of her cubicle. In the enormous slate roof of the Majestic are three rows of round windows, like portholes. Out of the highest one, at the extremity of the left wing, Nina looked. From thence she could see five other vast hotels, and the yard of Charing Cross Station, with three night cabs drawn up to the curb, and a red van of W. H. Smith and Son disappearing into the station. The Strand was quite empty. It was a strange world of sleep and greyness and disillusion. Within a couple of hundred yards or so of her, thousands of people lay asleep, and they would all soon wake into the disillusion, and the Strand would wake, and the first omnibus of all the omnibuses would come along. Never had simple Nina felt so sad and weary. She was determined to give up her father. She was bound to tell the manager of her discovery, for Nina was an honest servant, and she was piqued in her honesty. No one should know that Lionel Belmont was her father. She saw before her the task of forgetting him, and forgetting the rich dreams of which he had been the origin. She was once more a bookkeeper with no prospects. At eight she saw the manager in the managerial room. Mr. Reuben was a young Jew, aged about thirty-four, with a cold but indestructibly polite manner. He was a great man, and he knew it. He had almost invented the Majestic. She told him her news. It was impossible for foolish Nina to conceal her righteousness and her sense of her importance. "'Whom did you say, Miss Malpass?' asked Mr. Reuben. "'Mr. Lionel Belmont, at least that's what he calls himself.' "'Calls himself, Miss Malpass? "'Here's one of the telegrams.' "'Mr. Reuben read it, looked at little Nina, and smiled. "'He never laughed. "'Is it possible, Miss Malpass,' said he, "'that you don't know who Mr. Belmont and Mr. Pank are?' "'And then, as she shook her head, "'he continued in his impassive, precise way, "'Mr. Belmont is one of the principal theatrical managers "'in the United States.' Mr. Pank is one of the principal playwrights in the United States. Mr. Pank's melodrama, Nebraska, is now being played at the Regency by Mr. Belmont's own American company. Another of Mr. Belmont's companies starts shortly for a tour in the provinces with the musical comedy, The Dolmenico Doll. I believe that Mr. Pank and Mr. Belmont are now writing a new melodrama, and as they have both been travelling but not together, I expect that these telegrams relate to that melodrama. Did you suppose that safe burglars wire their plans to each other like this? He waved the telegram with a gesture of fatigue. Silly, ruined Nina made no answer. Do you ever read the papers, the telegraph or the mail, Miss Malpass? No, sir. You ought to, then you wouldn't be so ignorant and silly. A hotel clerk can't know too much. 
And, by the way, what were you doing in Mr. Belmont's room last night when you found these wonderful telegrams? I went there... I went there to... Don't cry, please. It won't help you. You must leave here today. You've been here three weeks, I think. I'll tell Mr. Smith to pay you your month's wages. You don't know enough for the majestic Miss Malpass, or perhaps you know too much. I'm sorry I had thought you would suit us. Keep straight, that's all I have to say to you. Go back to Doncaster, or wherever it is you came from. Leave before five o'clock. That'll do. With a godlike air, Mr. Reuben swung round his office chair and faced his desk. He tried not to perceive that there was a mysterious quality about this case which he had not quite understood. Nina tripped piteously out. In the whole of London, Nina had one acquaintance, and an hour or so later, after drinking some tea, she set forth to visit this acquaintance. The weight of her own foolishness, fatuity, silliness, and ignorance was heavy upon her. And, moreover, she had been told that Mr. Lionel Belmont had already departed back to America, his luggage being marked for the American transport line. She was primly walking the superlative of the miserable past the façade of the hotel when someone sprang out of a cab and spoke to her, and it was Mr. Lionel Belmont. "'Get right into this handsome, Miss Malpass,' he said kindly, "'and I guess we'll talk it out.' "'Talk what out?' she thought, but she got in. "'Marble Arch, and go up Regent Street, and don't hurry,' said Mr. Belmont to the cabman. "'How did he know my name?' she asked herself. "'A handsome's the most private place in London,' he said, after a pause. "'It certainly did seem to her very cosy and private.' and her nearness to one of the principal theatrical managers in America was almost startling. Her white frock with the black velvet decorations touched his grey suit. Now, he said, I do wish you'd tell me why you were in my parlour last night, honest. What for? she parried to gain time. Should she begin to disclose her identity? Because, well, because, oh, look here, my girl, I want to be on very peculiar terms with you. I want to straighten out everything. You'll be sort of struck, but I'll be bound to tell you I'm your father. Now, don't faint or anything. Oh, I knew that, she gasped. I saw the moles on your wrist when you were registering. Mother told me about them. Oh, if I had only known you knew. They looked at one another. It was only the day before yesterday I found out I possessed such a thing as a daughter. I had a kind of fancy to go round to the old spot. This notion of me having a daughter struck me considerable, and I concluded to trace her and size her up at once. Nina was bound to smile. So your poor mother's been dead three years? Yes, said Nina. Ah, don't let's talk about that. I feel I can't say just the right thing. And so you knew me by those pips? He pulled up his right sleeve. Was that why you came up to my parlour? Nina nodded, and Lionel Belmont sighed with relief. Why didn't you tell me at once, my dear, who you were? I didn't dare, she smiled. I was afraid. I thought you wouldn't. Listen, he said, I've wanted someone like you for years, years and years. I've got no one to look after. Then why didn't you tell me at once who you were? She questioned with adorable pertness. Oh, he laughed, how could I plump like that when I saw you first in the bureau, the stricken image of your mother at your age? I was nearly down. 
But I came up all right, didn't I, my dear? I acted it out well, didn't I? The hansom was rolling through Hyde Park, and the sunshiny hour was eleven in June. Nina looked forth on the gay and brilliant scene. Rhododendrons, duchesses, horses, dandies, the incomparable wealth and splendour of the capital. She took a long breath and began to be happy for the rest of her life. She felt that, despite her plain frock, she was in this picture. Her father had told her that his income was rising on a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and he would thank her to spend it. Her father had told her, when she had confessed the scene with Mr. Reuben and what led to it, that she had grit, and that the mistake was excusable, and that a girl as pretty as she was didn't want to be as fly as Mr. Reuben had said. Her father had told her that he was proud of her, and he had not been so rude as to laugh at her blunder. She felt that she was about to enter upon the true and only vocation of a dainty little morsel, namely to spend money earned by other people. She thought less homicidally now of the thirteen chorus girls of the previous night. Say, said her father, I sail this afternoon for New York, Nina. They said you'd gone at the hotel. Only my baggage, the Minnehaha, clears at five. I guess I want you to come along too. On the voyage we'll get acquainted and tell each other things. Suppose I say I won't. She spoke despotically as the pampered darling should. Then I'll wait for the next boat, but it'll be awkward. Then I'll come, but I've got no things. He pushed up the trap door. Driver, Bond Street, and get on to yourself, for goodness sake, hurry. You told me not to hurry, grumbled the cabby. And now I tell you to hustle, see? Shall you want me to call myself Belmont? Nina asked. I chose it because it was a fine ten-horsepower name twenty years ago, said her father, and she murmured that she liked the name very much. As Lionel Belmont the Magnificent paid the cabman, and Nina walked across the pavement into one of the most famous repositories of expensive frippery in the world, she thrilled with the profoundest pleasure her tiny soul was capable of. Foolish, simple Nina had achieved the Naples Ultra of her languorous dreams. End of chapter 11